changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is up, everybody? It is Mark from Modern Pain Care, CEO and lead instructor here, where we make you the complete clinician. Today, we are going to be talking about research, which is a, another interesting topic that uh, has different uh, perceptions depending on who you talk to. But uh, before we talk about research, let's let's get to know. Let's hear what Jared Hall's up to. How are you doing, Jared? I am doing good. I'm having a just a phenomenal week. Uh, you know, it's been gorgeous weather all week. I've been out and about, popping into you know a few of our clinics, getting everything back up to speed. Read a couple of really good papers this week. One that I'm going to send you that is just a total uh, mind bender that uh, Michael Ray shared with me on uh, on the philosophy of pain. So get ready for that this weekend. Michael Ray's got some good stuff. You know, he, he's always coming up with some thoughtful stuff. I really appreciate uh, a lot of the stuff he puts out. So uh, I'm, I'm in the midst of an ACT immersion course with Stephen Hayes, who's like the originator of ACT. So there's some mind-bending stuff that I'm going through with relational, uh, even relational frame theory, I think is what it's called. See, it's already escaped my brain. But uh, social constructivism, pragmatism, all these different philosophical, philosophical backgrounds that are really just strained in my brain. So you'll probably put me over the top with that. But uh, um, so for for today's topic, research, I think this is one of the things that uh, some of our uh, folks on Instagram had mentioned to you in a, one of your question and answer sessions. And it's one of those things that, you know, becomes this uh, you know, everybody's got their little carrying case of research that they want to throw at you to support whatever uh, viewpoint they have. But um, as a as a new grad, because I think one of the questions that uh, folks had too was like, when you're first coming out, how do you keep up with it? How do you like keep up with the massive amounts? Because you can go on Twitter, Instagram, and somebody else is posting. You you could probably see about 30 so research articles that are being referenced in a feed each day, just from, and it gets overwhelming. So I'm just curious, like what what What's been your strategy to kind of manage all that stuff with folks um, to help or to manage that with your own practice and how you'd recommend it to, to some of those up and coming clinicians or maybe even established clinicians who are like feeling like they're drowning in, in research? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And uh, first of all, there's you just have to recognize that you cannot keep up with all the research. It, it, it's just impossible. There are thousands of studies published every day. Uh, so I would say <clears throat> if you're looking to get into staying up on more research or especially maybe you're a student or you're a new grad coming out and maybe you haven't consumed as much research as a lot of other people, so you don't really know where to start. Maybe you haven't refined your, your ability to look at a research paper and say, oh yeah, this was a good research paper or this was a bad research paper or you know, this wasn't a great paper, but there were some good takeaways from it. Um, I would say probably the best thing that you can do is find a couple of people who are well-versed in uh, research. Maybe it's a couple of researchers, maybe it's a couple of information translators, you know, in the PT world or in the psychology world, and uh, try to get your feet wet by reading papers maybe that they recommend. Um, because if you find a trusted source, you know, let, let's say, you know, Ben Cormack, I would say he's a trusted source. He posts a lot of research. He's gonna have a critical review of it. And it's probably gonna be a, a pretty good paper most of the time. If you pop over to Twitter, uh, there's gonna be a ton of researchers actually sharing papers. You're gonna see Jill Cook on Twitter. You're gonna see Derek Griffin on Twitter. You're gonna see Peter O'Sullivan on, <clears throat> on Twitter. You're gonna see a bunch of the guys from NOI on Twitter. You're gonna see all these different people on Twitter. And actually following the researcher is usually a good bet to getting decent paper or having a, 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 de a decent discussion about it. So I would say when you're starting out, find some trusted sources. And if you if you want some trusted sources, you can definitely message Mark and I after this because, you know, we've kind of been through this and, and know of some good people to recommend to you. You know, you see Chad Cook on Twitter or something like that. You probably want to read something that he posts about. Um, and after you have started reading papers, maybe you try to, you challenge yourself. I want to read you know, 
one paper a week or two papers a week where you actually read the whole paper. You don't just read the abstract. You read the introduction. You read the methods. You read the results, even though sometimes they're tough to get through. You look at the graphs. You try to make sense of the graphs. You read the conclusions. You read the, the clinical implications. You read especially the limitations of the study, right? Because good researchers will tell you where their study was limited, and then you can start to look for those same limitations in other research studies where people were making claims that maybe didn't make sense, right? Because abstracts are very well known to have spin and uh, not necessarily represent exactly what's in the paper because uh, it, it helps things get published. It looks better. It's more eye-catching. It, it helps the paper get shared around a little bit more, which might help impact factor and all this sort of stuff. But I don't, I don't want to get too de deep down the rabbit hole right now. That's where I would start. You, you, you've got to start by finding some trusted sources to maybe help you funnel papers to you. Once you get really comfortable reading papers, there's a ton of pub crawler apps. There's like a Pedro evidence in your inbox that you can get papers sent to you every month that have been published that month. And you can actually filter through them yourself once you get a little bit more confident. Yeah, and I def definitely would uh, echo Jared's sentiments on Pedro. Pedro is something I use, and you can kind of curate exactly what they send you by topics and different things. And they have a nice little rating system that where they rate the quality of the evidence based on a, a specific scale they use. And there's a lot of ways and uh, websites you can lose. And at, at the end of the uh, stream here today, I'll jump on and I'll put some links into some some tools you can use to kind of uh, assess the quality of some of these studies. There's like a quotas criteria for diagnostic accuracy studies, and there's a bunch of them out there, and maybe you don't need to nerd too deep into it, but it can be a way for you to start developing some critical analysis skills to know what what's going on in the study, does it meet these criteria, um, and so you can just kind of see where stronger research is versus weaker research, but the, the mentoring thing also is a good uh, uh, option, and, and Twitter, like Jared mentioned, that's that's like, to me, I look at Twitter like free con ed uh, every day. You just jump on there, follow the researchers like Jared said, Jill Cook's on tendons. You got uh, the Peter O'Sullivan's. You got uh, all those folks who are posting their current research. Mary O'Keefe, you know, you, we list goes on with different people. Um, you just got to be careful as you follow folks that you don't get fanboy syndrome, fangirl syndrome, where, you know, they could post the worst paper on earth. And because it kind of aligns with your beliefs that, you know, you just kind of suspend your critical judgment because of the normal human nature that we have to kind of, you know, tend to want to agree with things that kind of fit our biases. Um, Jared, because that's, you know, one weak weakness I think we all have, and I know I have had myself as far as like, you know, I search out research studies. When I was like, you know, deep into manual therapyville, I would look for any ex, uh, article that supported manual therapy, gloss over the ones that didn't, you know, the ones that weren't shown positive response. Well, that was a terribly designed study, but not, and I'd often not ascribe the same critical judgment to the studies that, you know, showed some positive spin on manual therapy. And again, there's, you can find good research to support most of anything you want to support. Uh, and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get into some of the research on what we know about. It tells us with any long-term effects on pain, but uh, how do you avoid that trap, Jared, of getting like into fanboy fangirl syndrome and where you're just like a confirmation bias seeking machine? Uh, it's hard because it's human nature, man. Uh, you you innately want to find information that confirms your biases, and you tend to like people and, and follow people that have the same message that you have or have the message that you like, right? Um, you know, and we have to recognize that so that ourselves. You know, we teach a lot about pain. We have to recognize, hey, man, everything Adrian Lowe says probably isn't gospel or everything Lorimer Mosley says probably isn't gospel. We need to check that and make sure that we're actually evaluating the paper and we need to make sure that we're actually evaluating the metrics and comparing against, against things that other people publish as well. So I think that you have to actively try to have a scientist mindset. And it's tough, but a scientist mindset is to try to disprove what it is that you believe, right? You're trying to accept or reject the null hypothesis. And that sounds like super nerdy and that sounds uh, not, not fun, it sounds not cool, but you should not look for research papers confirming what you believe. You should look for research papers disproving what you believe. And if you can't find anything that disproves what you believe or everything is kind of, you know, uh, rejecting the null hypothesis or, or, or showing a positive effect and you can't 
can't find anything that disproves what you believe, then you can become more confident in what it is that you believe. You can't accept it with certainty, but you can uh, have a higher confidence that the statistical probability that what you believe is more likely to be right than more likely to be wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's where you just got to be careful, like jumping in because there's, we, as Jared said, it's a human nature thing where we're going to search out information that tends to confirm our beliefs, our, our comfort zone, maybe uh, the way things have been taught to us along. And that, that's the danger. And I know I'm just going to speak for myself. I, I've had periods in my career where I was very tribalized into a group, into a thinking. And I think that's, again, a human nature thing. We tend to group in with like-minded individuals that share our beliefs and values, but I would challenge everybody who's watching to, to just, you know, try to now granted, there are people that get you might try to engage with outside of your tribe that aren't maybe as friendly to engage with. I would recommend finding people who don't share your viewpoints, who can have a respectful, uh, professional dialogue and, a, in, you know, back and forth with, because those are some of my biggest learning opportunities. I remember uh, when I first started, and this was back when, but uh, Soma Simple was an online discussion forum where it was really paint science. There's Barrett Dorcos, the Diane uh, Jacobs, uh, Jason Silvernauts, where I really got to know Jason, uh, Rod Henderson, and others, John Ware, and some other folks, where I came in with a very heavy biased uh, manual therapy kind of viewpoint that, you know, it was all about my hands. It's all about what I can do with my fingers. Pain is just a matter of getting these better, and I can get my patients better. And obviously, that didn't get met well with a lot of the opinions on that discussion forum. But the nice thing that I always will appreciate, now there were a few folks that I might have had a little bit of a spat with, and you probably could look back at that forum. I probably was a little bit cranky in some of my interactions as I was starting to kind of take grasp that maybe what I thought I knew I didn't know as well as I thought. But um, those type of forums are invaluable. But if you just seek out information, that's going to be what you think, you uh, you know, to kind of confirm what you think you know and what your practice is telling you. I think you just limit yourself. You limit yourself. You limit your patience, most importantly, that if, you know, you just look to see that, hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing it right. I always look for, say, is there things I can do better? Are there things I can incorporate in my practice? Are there things that might show me that what I'm thinking and, and how I'm practicing and how I'm reasoning through things with patients, that they're, it may be wrong? And can you go in it with that intellectual humility that we need and your patients require that, hey, you need to be able to move and move off of things because science doesn't care what your beliefs are. Science doesn't care you know, how much research articles because there are going to be some that come out and disprove. It's, I can't even tell you how many things that I was told in PT school. I know DPT students get like eternally frustrated, but this is nature of healthcare education and nature of any real professional education is what you are told right now and taught a good chunk of it probably isn't really holding up well already to the research and a good chunk of it in future will not hold up well to the research so be able to uh, move and not get married to you know a thinking process or a philosophy and how you treat but you know have some definitely foundations in critical thinking clinical reasoning uh, and and make it person-centered and I think you can you know weave in and out of some of these things that science tells us uh, as it moves and changes and as we get less wrong as we move forward but what's been your experience there Jared with with getting folks or with you know some of the cognitive dissonance you've experienced along the way with research or you know what you thought you knew uh, maybe you didn't know as well. Uh, how do you how do you navigate that? And how would folks? I, I haven't seen any really blast from the past Jared Hall posts of, of angry outbursts or anything like that. I'm I'm sure there might be a few for me actually to be honest with you if you look hard enough. But how, how have you dealt with it in your career? Man, you know I actually want to start by saying something a little bit controversial. Um, and, and this might be the, uh, you know, what I hope to be, I guess, the stoic philosopher in me, because I, I read a bunch of philosophy specific, specifically, you know, the practice of stoicism. And uh, I actually think that it is a good idea to have those people on your newsfeed and to have those people in your friends list that maybe are a little bit inflammatory, maybe are a little bit uh, assholes, maybe are a little bit... Um, <clears throat> confrontational naysayer or whatever it is like you you pick your word and to leave them there don't block them don't avoid interaction with them because if you just put the ban hammer down on somebody that doesn't agree with you what are you doing you are literally cutting out any 
opposing or different opinion from your own and you're creating an echo chamber of, yeah, I like my little safe circle of only the people that agree with me and we can stand in a circle and we can talk about how cool our ideas are and you don't get introduced to the new idea. You don't have to face a little bit of cognitive dissonance of, ooh, shit, maybe that's not how I thought it was. Or I don't agree with X, Y, and Z person, but they bring up a decent point right there that I actually hadn't considered. And even if they are just a shit starter, guess what? You get to practice interacting with and having a reasonable, logical discussion with somebody that may be illogical. And that is a skill that you need to practice yourself. And that I think that I don't regret the times early on where I got into some heated discussions and that sort of thing on social media because it, um, it helped me practice a skill of interacting with people that I don't agree with and that can be really inflammatory or could be really aggressive and help help me learn how to keep my cool and uh, not get upset by this and just have a reasonable, logical discussion. And it helped me actually develop my soft skills of interacting with people that uh, may be a little bit more likely to get inflamed. So I think that there there's a actual a lot of benefit in interacting with those people. And that's that's a reason that I've I've literally never blocked or banned a single person on any social media platform because I think that that's uh, a quick way towards you know sheltering yourself from beliefs that might actually be helpful for you or it might be reasonable for you to challenge what it is that you think uh so i know that that's a controversial opinion a lot of times people just say oh you know you need to cut that toxic toxicity out of your life you need to throw the band hammer down there you know that person doesn't follow good rules of engagement and that's that may be true but that's also a good opportunity for you to practice interacting with uh, that type of individual. And it's a good opportunity for you to really craft your ideas. Because if somebody is just poking holes in everything that you say and it pisses you off, guess what you've got to do? You've got to be able to solidify what you think in your mind and, and and strengthen it up against all sorts of arguments. And guess what that's gonna do? When they when they question what it is that you believe, you've gotta go hit the research and you've gotta come up with a really good explanation as to why you believe what you believe and why that's valid. And more often than not, that actually led me to updating my beliefs. So Mark asked, you know, what are some times that my beliefs changed? Well, one of the biggest times that my beliefs changed was like uh, most people have heard a lot of people have heard my story that's on the level up initiative you know my my early on story about how i was just all into the ortho all into the manual therapy all into manipulation and then i took a course with adrian lowe that was over whiplash and i got to sit down and talk one-on-one -on -one with adrian lowe for several hours and uh learn that pain was not what i thought pain was pain was way complex and it wasn't just you know these signals coming from the body because my anatomy professor taught me the ALS carries pain and temperature information. Like I learned the neuroanatomy, the spinal cord carries pain. It carries pain up to the brain. So I was thinking pain is this peripheral thing coming in and you know, the gate control theory, right? The gate control theory is I'm blocking that pain from getting to my brain and these things just aren't right, but that's what I was taught. So I took a class with Adrian Lowe and <clears throat> it pulled the rug under out from underneath my feet and it made my stomach sink and it made me feel uncomfortable uh, because somebody that I really respected and it was really smart and that posted a lot of research and had really good uh, rationale told me what I believed was wrong. So what could I, what did I do? Did I get pissed off at Adrian Lowe? No, I got pissed off at myself and I challenged myself to, to update my beliefs. And then we can go to the next level, which was dry needling, which was a huge, uh, cognitive dissonance area for me because I spent a lot of time and a lot of money uh, and a lot of pain getting dry needled and learning how to dry needle um, to be challenged uh, with the trigger point hypothesis and to be challenged with research that shows, you know, double blind sham with, act with toothpicks doesn't do any better or worse, you know, it's the same as actually using needles. And uh, I had to dig into the research really hard on that because you know, you, you have to really be conscious about when you're feeling cognitive dissonance. And if you are feeling cognitive dissonance, if you notice emotion show up 
Like if, if you read something or hear somebody say something and you feel emotion start to happen, that is a sign in and of itself that you need to check what you believe. And why are you getting emotional about this? There's no reason to get emotional about information. Information is just information, right? So you have to try to pull that away and use the, the emotion that comes up as a flag to say, why do I believe this? And should I believe this? And should I look into this deeper? Why am I getting emotional about it? So that is a really long tangential answer as usual. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, it's it's all good, man. I think it was a, a good uh, discussion about uh, you know how to how to deal with that cognitive dissonance and how to engage. I've I've been peeking into Stoicism, some Marcus Aurelius. I know you've been doing some reading in that uh, realm, so I'll have to maybe uh, pick your brain for some reading recommendations on that. But I, I want to bring it back a little bit to kind of the research front because as a, a normal, we we both go on our, our separate tangents. But one thing that I think commonly maybe gets overlooked, maybe not. Um, I've had some comments on social media before of like, you know, conflicts of interest, uh, just things that I think we need to be aware of as far as authors of studies. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big researcher and don't pump out research. So, but researchers are humans and researchers are biased. And to really, I mean, you kind of need a bias to pose a question in the first place to kind of ask, you know, some things to, to you know, that hopefully your, your study or things can kind of hash out. But one of the common ones that I've seen, you know, is, is like somebody who, for instance, may teach a course on a specific intervention, start to research that intervention. So um, that probably obviously makes some probably conflict of interest of like, there's going to be some probably some propensity for that person to want this thing to look good because they're teaching and getting monetarily paid for this intervention to be well now or to do well uh, and they want it to look good in science as well and and that's again a human thing but i th and i've seen it better over the last few years where there's been some more explicit statements of hey i teach courses related to pain neuroscience education or dry dry needling or, or different things so a lot of our authors are doing a great job in that but uh, i do think we need to take pause with uh, the when somebody who teaches and uh, you know is heavily invested in intervention researches it and comes out with positive results I think again not to say they may have ran a beautiful study so I think but again I think that needs to be something you determine and maybe skip the abstract and introduction part and get to the methods and results and just see there because that's where you get the most objective information you get a lot of the spin like jared said in the abstract you get a lot of spin in the intro because they're trying to paint the picture of why this thing needs to be studied and and what their supporting argument is which is going to be biased by human nature but um yeah i would i would recommend digging into the methods but and and results to get more of that objective view the other thing is just recognize like clinical equipoise is a, a topic i've talked about frequently is just this a study in its perfect form, which I don't think this ever perfectly exists, there should be no preconceived beliefs by the researchers that there's one intervention arm that's better than the other. So if you're comparing a dry needling to manipulation, the, the, the researchers in, in a truly perfectly state of equipoise, there should be no belief from that researcher that, or, or knowledge that needling or manipulation are superior to the other. But Chad Cook's done some great research to show that, hey, it, practitioners who lack personal equipoise or like personal beliefs on an intervention, um, that has a heavy influence on outcomes. So the study that he did was mobilization versus manipulation. So the, the researchers and the folks performing the intervention arms, they looked at what their personal clinical beliefs were uh, regarding the intervention. And lo and behold, the, the clinicians who were performing the <clears throat> interventions that believed in manipulation got better results and stick significant stick statistically significant improvements when they applied manipulation those who were looking who were more uh, biased towards mobilization got better results and more statistically significant results with mobilization that shouldn't surprise us because clinically that's like hey this is the intervention i do every day uh and you're sitting in front of a patient but i'm gonna try something that i don't do ever and i don't have a strong beliefs in it are you gonna get the, that result with a patient in your in your treatment room i i don't i would say not i mean some people may argue and i'd love to hear anybody's thoughts if they uh, disagree but i think that's a huge topic that we need to recognize as we look at research is just look at who's publishing it, 
what's their background? Do they have any vested interest, conflict of interest? So, Jared, what has been your experience and maybe what are your views on the whole conflict of interest thing? Because it's, it's an issue, I think, that permeates all of research across all professions. But I'm just, what are your thoughts there? Okay, so uh, again, I want to start by prefacing this and, and laying the base foundation of understanding that conflict of interest does not mean actively pursuing um, dishonest uh, results or does not mean trying to manipulate the data. Uh, by and large part, when there are issues with clinical equipoise, when there are issues with even funding sources, when there are issues with this sort of stuff, Oftentimes, it's an implicit bias, right? It's a bias that the researcher or the clinician has that they don't even necessarily recognize. And they think, I am trying to be objective. No, that funding source did not affect the way that I think about this. No, my, you know, uh, affinity for dry needling or manipulation or ASTEM or Graston or uh, pain neuroscience education or whatever. No, you know, that even though I like that, I'm trying to be objective in this study. Um, we have to recognize that science was developed, the scientific method, to try to limit bias because we are all inherently biased. And oftentimes we don't even recognize those, bias, those biases because they're implicit, meaning they're there and we can't even actively recognize them. They're subconscious biases that happen, you know, if you've read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, it's that fast style thinking, that, that, that thing that happens before you even recognize it. Or if you've read anything from Jonathan Haidt, it would be the, the rider and the elephant, right? It's your elephant is going this way before the rider even knows. And, and you have to actively try to be the rider to pull the elephant back on track, right? So there's all these metaphors, there's all these visualizations for these implicit biases and these uh, reactionary uh, things that happen at the subconscious level with us that we don't even notice. So most researchers are not bad people. Most clinicians are not bad people. Hell, a lot of people funding the research that you think, oh, big pharma and this, that, and the other, they're not necessarily bad people, but there are multiple levels at the clinician level and maybe at the research group level and maybe at the institutional level and maybe at the funding source level and maybe even at the national societal level or whatever it is. There are multiple layers and levels of bias that take it all together can add up to create a pretty significant influence to the results of the study and to the outcome of the study. And it's just a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. But what you come away with is something that shows positive results. But then when another group goes and does it or five other groups go and do it, they don't get the same result because maybe their biases and their how they ran it was a little bit different or maybe their selection process was a little bit different. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Malignant that, gosh, I would recommend anyone reading. It's a book, it's a deep dive into the cancer industry. Uh, and I hate to say industry, but the cancer industry and the research and the researchers and the drug companies and the funding. And it talks a lot about these type of biases and these type of influences, how good people uh, doing good things and purposely they're trying to do the right thing can still come away with uh, less than um, objective results uh, due to a bunch of different factors. And, and you can take the, the things that the author talks about in the cancer industry and the can cancer treatment, and you can just cross apply that to literally any uh, industry or form or avenue of research because the same exact human biases exist everywhere. So we can't just say, oh, that's a bad industry and my industry is fine. You know, we're good people. No, the same exact thing exists across all people. It might just be on a bigger or smaller scale, right? Yeah, I think we, we can't argue that, uh, you know, although we have not nearly the uh, lobbying power and things, but, you know, physical therapists, we have an inherent, uh, you know, bias to want to find value in what we do. I think that's a human thing uh, that we do. Hopefully what we seek value in is what, uh, you know, is truly what, you know, our people find value in and obviously helps our patients pursue their valued goals and things like that instead of us trying to, 
you know, go down a rabbit hole where it becomes about us and our methods and, and we lose sight of that. And I wanted to kind of bring it into a topic that I've been kind of getting deep into. And, and we got a project coming out that uh, we'll probably announce here in the next few weeks on what is, you know, the complexity of evidence and looking from philosophy to the clinic, because that's one of the uh, challenges. I don't think we recognize the implicit kind of philo philosophical, epistemological assumptions we make of what we think we know and what's the foundation of, of, of our research. And one of the big foundations of research that it's biomedical philosophy. It's this, you know, I identify thy pathology, I perform a specific intervention. It's very linear, you know, and it works for a lot of things. Like, uh, you know, I'm sure the, the COVID-19, they're doing a lot of that specific things where they can kind of really tightly control and, 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 and just look at one factor or one specific treatment and see what the outcomes are. And, it's, it's, and that might be a little bit more linear. Of course, there's probably comorbid issues and other things that are, 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 are weaving into that uh, treatment. But when it comes to pain, you know, I think we have to recognize that that philosophy kind of is, is, is kind of, it's a weakness as far as we know pain is much more than a monocausal thing. I mean, rarely, I mean, okay, you fracture a leg and you, you okay, there's probably a pretty specific monocausal thing. So there can be, you know, some, although again, we could probably come up with scenarios where there were other things in the context around that person where their pain experience was much different than somebody's. But again, I'm not, I'll digress a little bit, but I just think we have to recognize that, you know, pain, and that's where I like, if you ever get a chance to read Matt Lowe's stuff, uh, which is dispositional frameworks, and, and we're going to talk a lot about dispositional frameworks, dispositional philosophies, where it looks at causation from a very different point of view where cause it because that's really the foundation is is it you know this one cause that we can identify that this is the cause this is the effect um that's kind of how biomedical research tends to be or uh can we look at you know what are the you know and they'll talk about mutual manifestation partners with just things and and processes that are going on around a person that can come together to manifest you know a, a symptom or a or pain in this case um i'm, I'm gonna try not to get too deep in the weeds because that tends to be jared and i's mo as far as that but um i'm just curious jared what kind of do you what are your thoughts on like the the weaknesses as far as like the, some of the philosophical assumptions that our research is founded on especially when it looks at the biomedical way of of, of kind of generating research where there's tightly internally controlled studies that rarely replicate what you're seeing in the front lines of the clinic and often are these are the ones that are generating these clinical guidelines that sometimes don't fit the person in front of you i'm just curious how you navigate that whole thing that's a massive question and i expect a, I expect a 15 second answer so don't go above but uh, i'm just curious uh, you know how do you how do you go about kind of you know just recognizing the weakness doesn't mean we throw away biomedical research and rcts aren't the devil but they are they, they are limited i'm just curious what your thoughts are on that and go uh <laughs> oh man okay so oh geez uh, if i had to simplify it down um th this is i guess maybe more of a a negative view but when I look at research, it's highly standardized because it needs to be, right? You you standardize your patient population and you exclude uh, anybody that has X, Y, and Z condition, X, Y, and Z condition that's over X years old, that has a history of X injury, right? So you exclude all these people. You start with a thousand people and you exclude 500. And now you've got 500 people that fit into like your predetermined criteria, your homogenous group. And the reason that we do that homogenous group is uh, the less variability, the more likely you are to show a real effect in that patient population, right? But at the same time, what you've done is excluded 500 real life people that are probably going to walk into your clinic. And when you've excluded people that Say, for instance, I've excluded them because I don't know that they'll respond well to this treatment because of they, they have a history of X, Y, and Z. Uh, what you do is you actually increase the likelihood that you will show a positive result in your treatment because you've excluded variability and you've excluded people that may have a more difficult time responding due to complexity and due to comorbid conditions and all of this sort of stuff. So I, I kind of have a pessimistic view of research in the fact that uh, I assume everything that shows 
a response. In reality, that response is probably uh, smaller than what's shown in the research because um, my patients that walk into my clinic are very unlikely to fit exactly in that small group that I excluded down to. Uh, number two, there's different things <clears throat> called like Simpson's paradox and Hawthorne effects and all this sort of stuff, right? That uh, actually being in a research study in and of itself often falsely uh, inflates outcomes because people will start to make changes uh, in their lifestyle to get better that they wouldn't necessarily do. Um, and people want to please researchers oftentimes, so they want to show a positive effect and they know that the researcher is looking for X, Y, and Z effect. So that will actually inflate your outcomes a little bit. And then like, you know, blah, 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 blah. If blinding wasn't done good, or if there wasn't good clinical equipoise in that study, like go through every freaking layer. So if an effect is right here, I probably think that the real effect is right here in most research studies. So I have a pessimistic view, but um, at the same time, I think this is where uh, the other parts of evidence-based practice come in, whether it's the clinical expertise and the patient-specific uh, beliefs and preferences and that sort of thing. And uh, I don't want to go too deep into it, but it's not a it's not an MF stool, right? If you take one away, it doesn't fall over. It's more of the funnel mindset where you start with the evidence and then you work into your clinical expertise within that evidence. Then you work into what the patient uh, uh, has preferences for and has beliefs for and has um, expectations of within that as well, right? So you, you funnel up to what your best treatment is gonna be for that person at that time based on the evidence, based on your expertise, based on patient-specific factors, not take one away and it just falls over, right? Um, so that helps you zero in on maybe what's gonna be the best target rather than being way over here on the edge of the target saying, oh yeah, just because the patient says this, um, that's exactly what I'm gonna do, even though it's missing the target massively, right? Uh, it, we can think of a million treatments that are just absolute bullshit, but people want them, uh, and, and that's not necessarily a good place to be. But then we can also envision that person that isn't taking into account what the patient is, um, their specific desires, their specific um, history, and they're just being like staunchly evidence-based because there's not evidence to support this thing 100%, and they're also missing the boat as well. Um, that was over 15 seconds, but that's kind of where I would start that discussion, and then we could continue for an hour. Yeah, yeah, that's that is. Yeah, you brought up some really good points. I think it's just all things we need to be keeping mindful as we're kind of navigating uh, the research and all that uh, good stuff. I'm sorry I got distracted here with uh, my daughter's getting up, but uh, um, and I lost where I was going with things. But uh, any thoughts for like, because um, you know, students. I think it's so easy to kind of get, uh, you know, find research, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but, uh, you, you know, you've mentioned seeking out alternative views and keep them in your feeds and, and making sure that uh, we're keeping, um, you know, alternative uh, views in our mind, in our, in our view, so we're not just kind of confirmation bias and uh, things. So I, I think that's a, a, a extremely good point. And uh, we're not going to get too deep into philosophy today because that gets my mind bent and it, it uh, you know, makes things hurt. But I, I like what you talk about with the, the stool. I think true clinical expertise is not just becoming an evidence-based practice craved individual where all you see is the research all you see is like you know effect sizes and things like that and, and as jared said like you get a study where i'm just going to say maybe i love needling i'm just going to say I, I love it and that's my clinic that is the culture we breed as far as patients come in they love it they want it it is an expectation it is they ascribe meaning to it that it that is going to be a healing intervention for them and now i decide to go put a study on board with that intervention in my clinic so i mean and you can just see how that and again, it's not bad. It's just that, you know, any, I think it just introduces that bias that we need to recognize exists. It, you know, depending on the environment, these studies are taking place, you know, that when in whatever, you know, your bias is, which we all carry it, like what's our preferred mode of interacting with the person. If we 
have a study that we conduct on that intervention, good chances that because of the culture we've created of, of patients, you know, kind of these contextual factors and kind of placebo mechanisms and different things, we're going to probably have a higher propensity of having positive. Hence why you need to look at people and studies that don't just, you know, study if people like hamburgers at McDonald's, where you look at things where there's some other, uh, you know, environments and you, you don't let one study, you know, you don't just hang your hat on one study because, you know, Mark, the, the who loves needling, says needling, look at his study. It's all these effect sizes are amazing. And it's, uh, you know, this is, I'm going to put this on my PowerPoint and I'm going to ignore the other, you know, 30 studies or so. And I'm, you can find equal studies often on both sides of most topics of yay or nay, but um, oftentimes some of them may, you know, move more towards one side or the other. But just got to be careful that, you know, you don't get too excited over one study and be patient and and be cautiously optimistic when you start seeing stuff. I think even the things that, uh, you know, I've really held dear to, I mean, manual therapy, I've, uh, I could, and I still have a end note full of, you know, pro manual therapy, but I've filled it in also with a lot more, hey, this doesn't seem to show effects because I think we just have to be more unbiased towards that stuff. But to kind of go more towards a little bit into that dispositionalist work, because, uh, you know, RCT, and you've nicely pointed out, Jared, that it doesn't really allow for a lot of these, because it's very tightly internally controlled for a good reason to, to really determine, you know, as specific as we can, um, you know, maybe some more mechanistic ways of looking at how things are, are hashing out with patients and interventions. But you know, there may be other studies or, or forms of study that could better see, well, what's the context around this person that might, what are these mutual manifestation partners um, as far as mutual factors and variables that exist in a person's life that may predispose somebody towards a specific outcome. And I, I'm, an RCT, I'm not sure, does that. Jared just pointed out how you know, some of this tightly internally controls things excludes a good chunk of your population. Um, I know a lot of the patients I see with chronic low back pain don't fit a med good majority of the you know, inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. They would be excluded from the, a good chunk of studies that are out there that people are hanging their hats on for supporting the use of those interventions. So uh, where do you see, you know, folks like research-wise, Jared, as far as how can they look at things beyond just the monocausal one variable way of looking at it? And uh, maybe there's different types of research that folks can peek at that would better lend them to see context, you know, the patient's context and different things like that. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how might, you know, people and clinicians better be able to kind of navigate that instead of trying to find the one thing that we've really struggled with mightily with pain, of course, and I hope we can understand it's probably never going to be found in the vast majority of pain states. But um, I'm curious, what, what are some other kind of modes or methods of research you think would be helpful for folks to peek at? Man, this is a really tough question. Uh, a, because I'm not smart enough to answer it well, and B, because it, there's, there's so many factors, and I guess... <clears throat> Um, I think that it's, oh man, I think that it's really important to, um, first of all, I, I, I want to start here before I go to where your question was. Uh, I think it's really important, first of all, to recognize that reading only within your field is a terrible idea. So if you are just reading randomized control trials from physical therapy and, and you're not reading about concepts of psychology and concepts of sociology and concept, yeah, maybe a little bit into immunology, maybe a little bit into other medical uh, types of things. If you're not reading about you know, information from different lines of research that may have slightly different views or approaches, um, you're missing the boat a little bit because we're already biased into our specific line of thought and we're conducting our research in this line of thought. And if you're not seeing these things that psychology is researching about and sociology is researching about and that sort of thing, you're automatically going to miss other factors that could be playing a role in your patient that you didn't even recognize that, that person. So I think that that's one of the places you have to start. Um, I would, I would love to see more pragmatically designed research trials where, um, yeah, you try to measure everything in clinic, but you, you perform the research in what's called a pragmatic design where you allow a clinician to, uh, self-select 
the treatment for that patient and you don't filter out patients necessarily as much because it's who actually walks into your clinic with what complaints. And you do this over a large group of people to where you actually end up having enough people that come in with you know the same complaint and you allow the clinician to self-select the treatment and the patient to self-select the treatment and then you see responses in clinic so that's more of like a real life research design but again there's there's a lot of variables which is good and bad because a lot of variables allows it to be more real life but at the same time has the propensity to skew the outcomes a little bit but i i think that mixing pragmatic trials with tightly controlled trials probably helps you find something better in the middle to go with. So, uh, you know, reading outside of your scope, reading outside of your practice, uh, hopefully we can get more pragmatic uh, designs. And I, you know, I don't think, I think that there's a, a good value in also looking at case series and looking at, uh, you know, population-based data, cross-sectional data, uh, longitudinal data, that sort of stuff, because um, that allows you to see trends and you see trends in populations, you see trends in big groups. And when you see those trends emerge, that's where you can maybe go in and do like a little bit tighter of a study. But if you're not looking at all of this research as well, and you're not seeing these general trends, you could be missing the forest for the trees. And I think that that's something that we should probably look at. And like like we talked about, uh, A, I'm not smart enough to talk deeply about the dispositional framework, and I don't want to get in the weeds too much of going into that stuff. But maybe you can make it succinct, Mark. Well, I think you, you, you bring up some good points. I just think we need to look beyond just the biomedical, bio, biological look at pain. I mean, you mentioned cult, you know, anthropology, cultural stuff. You mentioned sociology, social you know, constructivists. I'm not going to get into the weeds of that, but looking at all the things we know, psycho, psychological, social, sociology, cultural, all these things that we know impact and can kind of manifest how somebody's going to respond, perceive, and, and all these different things to some of the sensations of their body. Uh, encounters in life, uh, I think it's just important to, as Jared said, look outside of just biomedical, looking for one specific, you know, piece of uh, biological data that's going to predict a pain experience. I think we've recognized that that's been a, a, you know, a pretty, you know, not not the most fruitful pursuit in our, you know, pursuit of really trying to figure out pain. But the other thing I would just say as we kind of kind of wrap this up today is just, you know, I think one of the ways we can start helping you know, to really hash out, uh, you know, some of the efficacy, effectiveness and all these different things is, you know, instead of having, and this is a massively challenging thing because it would take a, a good old ego swallow, which I don't think we're good at. Uh, in, in, but if somebody, these are just where we conduct studies where there's expert arms of studies where, you know, if somebody wants to compare, you know, manipulation versus mobilization, we don't just get a bunch of pro manipulators studying. And of course, likely they're going to get, you know, good response to manipulation. You take pro manipulators, pro mobilizers and you put them all in the intervention arms and you see how it hashes out my thoughts is it's probably not gonna be all that different but i could be wrong and i'm open to being wrong of course because that's part of the gig as far as trying to be you know, a good critical thinker but uh yeah i just think there's there's a lot we could do to improve research that's not easy to do again you know if people are personally invested in a certain belief system are they going to be willing to put their money where their mouth is per se and uh you know get in a study where they're comparing their intervention to another expert arm of folks who have a equal bias and and beliefs and then I think it kind of hashes out a little bit of that equipoise thing and kind of maybe cancels it out a little bit and uh, we can maybe see a little bit more um, what interventions truly kind of hold the most water although again my biases and I declared freely and openly that I don't think we're ever going to find one intervention that works for every person people are just too complex they're too different they uh, there's just different cultures, you know, what works in Phoenix, Arizona may not work in, uh, you know, uh, you know, Eastern medicine, uh, you know, Western medicine doesn't often work well with folks that have a more Eastern medicine bias. So I think we could go into the weeds of that, but, uh, I'm going to, out of interest in time and respect for everybody's time. I really appreciate everybody who's jumped on with us, uh, today. Uh, we're going to be doing these every Thursday. So if you have any topics that you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, definitely throw them in the comments. Um, uh, definitely message Jared and I if you have any uh, questions or comments or any follow-ups you'd like to talk about about this. Uh, we frequently are 
responding via email and, and instant message to folks who are, who are looking to dig a little bit deeper. As I said earlier, we're going to be posting some things, some resources as far as if you want to kind of look at here's some critical analysis uh, assistances and, or assistant tools and things you can do to kind of kind of look at a randomized controlled trial or a, or a qualitative study or different things like that. But uh, I'll post some of those up there at the end. Uh, any uh, parting thoughts you have for folks before we wrap this up, Jer? Oh, man. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, why you need to be cautious about evidence-based practice. You need to be cautious about how you think and everything. Don't get in the mindset that everything sucks and nothing works. Get in the mindset of, hey, we're, we're wrong, but we're a hell of a lot less wrong than we were 100 years ago. And maybe in, you know, 10 years from now and 10 years from then, we're going to get steadily less wrong. And that's a beautiful thing. That's the process of science. And that's the process of evidence-based medicine. That's the process of clinical expertise is gradually becoming less wrong. But at the same time, uh, you should never ever hold on to something so tightly and so emotionally that you can't let it go. Uh, we have to challenge ourselves to think like scientists and um, just take information for what it is. It's just information. It doesn't have to be part of you. It doesn't have to be woven into your integral belief system. Be nimble and be ready to update your beliefs uh, when new and stronger and better evidence uh, comes out. I, I think that it will reduce cognitive dissonance. It will reduce emotional reactions. It will reduce the likelihood that you uh, are blinded by information and stick your head in the sand. Um, but we're humans and we're not perfect. It's always going to happen. But our goal is to minimize that as much as possible. Yeah. Work each day to be less wrong tomorrow. And uh, like Jared said, we've gotten a hell of a lot less wrong, I guess you could say, over periods of time. And, and, and as science moves forward, we'll get better and better. Um, but be okay that it's okay not to have all the perfect answers and that, that uh, we're going to do the best we can for each patient. But we're going to also recognize that evidence and research plays one role. The, the person and their context and their experience is a huge part of it too. Um, and then also having a constant critical analysis of our own selves, a meta, metacognitive analysis of our thinking and where our biases and, and just have recognized the context we bring to that scenario too. You can, if you can have all three of those figured out as far as, I shouldn't say figured out, but really awareness of those three factors and really giving them each equal uh, kind of consideration as you kind of determine how you're going to best help somebody. I think you can really move yourself forward in the best way professionally, but also best help the patients in front of you. Because again, a lot of patients aren't going to perfectly fit the RCT you read on, on Tuesday. So with that said, I'm going to sign off for today again. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, you all have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon. This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.